This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org/ccnyc. Thanks for listening. I always feel a little mischievous when I schedule Fusatsu on a Sunday uh, because uh, historically within the Mountains Rivers Order, they're always on a Thursday evening. And so we have our regulars who come on Thursday evening and more come on Fusatsu because students know what Fusatsu is. Uh, and then we have our regulars who come on Sunday and walk into this liturgical experience uh, that they may or may not be prepared for. Um, but I schedule it, uh, we hold um, one each month of Ango, which is a three-month intensified training period, and we have two Angos a year, so we hold six a year. Um, and I try and make sure one of them is on a Sunday in each Ango, both for availability purposes, um, but also to help us get past uh, the idea that Zen practice is just Zazen, and that will take care of everything. Um, and that's maybe what we want or what we think of as practice, but there's much more to it um, than Zazen. Another way of expressing that is uh, this is Zazen also. There's much more to Zazen. <laughs> um, frankly, if it doesn't imbue your life in every aspect, then what are you doing? Uh, so this is a, a service of atonement. Uh, and to me, it's one of the most beautiful and profound ceremonies within Buddhism. Um, in doing fusatsu, we acknowledge the truth of suffering, which is caused by our own ignorant view of ourself as separate from the world. And this is a world we inhabit, we live in, that informs us that more than inhabit, we are part and parcel of in, in a profound way that perhaps we are not able to completely understand or realize, but certainly we can feel. So in our atonement, we atone for the beginningless greed, anger, uh, and ignorance that arise from our life and from the countless lives before us. Uh, in the workshop yesterday on the um, Eightfold Noble Path, I think it was yesterday, but it might have been Thursday, on, when we <laughs> did the first Noble Truth. I'm kind of lost in all the teachings the past couple of weeks. Um, and more to come with other teachers. Um, I quoted one, uh, one teacher as noting that the karma, that, that the importance of uh, fusatsu, the importance of acknowledging karma, usually we would look at karma from our own personal perspective, you know, what we have done, or we'd look at atonement for what we've done. But the quote, the person quoted that or said, for them, the most important aspect of atonement and karma is generational. 
is, so for how many generations, just to give a select few that are currently within our consciousness, have we been persecuting people who are different than us, different than my skin color, different than my cultural background, different than this person's gender, different than uh, my middle-class upbringing, different than, and you can go on endlessly. Um, And someone also noted uh, recently, personally to me, how difficult this practice is in one sense, because you are creating a difference between yourself and everything else that seems to be going out on out there. I mean, we we are swimming against the current. So you know, we can call it materialism. We can call it um, capitalism, um, whatever it is, in all its manifestations. But also to appreciate that nothing has been different since the Buddha's time, when he said. Um, that what's going on now, he was in the world of Hinduism, what's going on now is creating so much suffering, and it's not just Hinduism, but it's us, it's human beings. Can I do something to address it? And of course, he started with himself personally. That is the message of this practice. We personally have to take care of our own suffering in order to help other people's suffering. We personally have to take care of our own suffering in order to help this Earth's suffering. We personally have to take care of our own prejudice and misunderstandings in order to take care of the suffering of people of color or anyone else we define as internally as different than us or habitually or culturally as different than us, even if we have some degree of freedom of that. So we, the service begins by reciting the verse of atonement and the names of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas who inspire us, who have seen into their being and your being and my being in such a way that it addresses suffering. And yet we recapitulate it, we recreate it, we keep going on because there's plenty of new supply of beings who are eager to get what they want and avoid what they don't want or be numb to it. So don't miss the names of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas because in one sense they represent and in another sense, just as we chant the name of the male and female ancestors, real beings just like you and me who've practiced, who've realized themselves and have done their best to fulfill their vows of helping all beings which is all we can do is our best to do that. That's what we have the power to do in this lifetime. You know, I comment frequently um, after virtually a lifetime of practice, I'm regretful that I couldn't start again at the age of 20 with everything that I've practiced up to now (laughs) and really take what this lifetime has brought me and offer it. Um, and in a funny way I can because not because I believe in reincarnation but I believe in karma uh, because that's my experience that it will someone just left can someone make sure they're physically and mentally okay please Um, and if they want to leave that's fine (laughs) 
Open the door. <laughs> um, so that's followed by a renewal of vows. We chanted the Bodhisattva vows. We renew them every time we chant them. We take them up again for the first time, again. And that's a rededication to live in accord with our own original nature, undefiled, unperturbed, that you find, can find, when you sit zazen. may take a while to, all, for all the crap to settle out. That's okay, that's karmic. But it will, because that's karmic too, sitting. So fusatsu is the wisdom we fully realize, not by recitation, or not merely by recitation, but by our actual embodiment. By actually, you know, there's something to doing it and not even being connected, because if you do it over and over and over and over again, guess what happens? You know, you're trusting something. We've all had that experience. I remember the first time I did liturgy at Zen Mountain Monastery. I trained in a monastery where there really wasn't much of a connection. Uh, it was a Rinzai Monastery. They don't put a great deal of emphasis, at least where I trained, on liturgy. And all of a sudden, the Sunday program, and it went on forever. <laughs> you know, my feet were getting tired. <laughs> you know, and I... I just couldn't relate to it. You know, well, the first time we chanted the names of the Buddha, I couldn't relate to it. But the point of liturgy is you do it over and over and over. And someplace along the line, you begin to forget your own opinions and your sense of a separate self. And it begins without you even knowing, and maybe even against, you know, with your cultivated resistance um, to infiltrate you and teach you something way beyond anything you know or can imagine. Those uh, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, those women and men in our lineage, are alive now, here, when you chant their names. They become you. And you begin to see through their very eyes and think their very thoughts as yourself. So, we're not merely reciting something, but we're actually practicing the embodiment of it. And the ceremony is central to our practice and vital to the peace that we seek. If you're not seeking peace, maybe you're in the wrong place. And I think everybody is seeking peace in the universe in their own particular cultivated suffering way. <laughs> um, so it's important for those interested in Buddhist practice to realize, and especially in Zen, which is so direct, to understand that practice has to go beyond what we might understand as meditation and to extend to every aspect of our life, how we think, how we act, for a life of a bodhisattva to be realized. And with that comes our humanness. Sometimes we don't feel great about that. I mean, if you're, if you're doing bodhisattvic work, you're going to encounter... It's like someone once... Someone 
I knew once wanted to be a court reporter, and Rosha Kaplow, my teacher at the time, said, what are you? who had been a court reporter at the Nuremberg Trials, and, and that's how he got into Zen, talk about being depressed, you know, and uh, carrying the weight of that. And he said to the person, you know, you really need to think about this because you're going to be a court reporter for bitter divorces and trials and this and that. You know, is that for you? For him, it was a spark to abandon his life in this city and go to Japan and work to practice Zen and realize himself because that was the only place you could do that in that way. So this aspiration to be a bodhisattva, to realize ourselves in the midst of our practice, uh, is not beyond any of us. And it doesn't need to wait till we have some deep mystical religious experience. The earth can't wait. The isms that are so oppressed and oppressive and that we have cultivated can't wait. So how do we begin to cultivate a life that is morally and ethically sound? Ethical conduct is built on the vast conception, the boundless conception of universal love. And love is such a loaded word. Um, I'm not even sure it's exactly the right word as I understand that sentence in myself. It certainly encompasses compassion. It certainly encompasses my own selfishness and desire to practice something different. So it encompasses my delusions, your delusions. It encompasses my delusion that I can actually help somebody. And yet, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do it. You know, so that's not original to me. You know, it's what the Buddha faced upon his awakening and realized everybody already is what he's realized. So how can he help them? How can he give them that? And it took him a week to figure out the question wasn't helpful. Get up off your ass and help. Yes, sir, he said to himself. That's what he did. And that's what we have to do. And do it within the context of selflessness, which has to be cultivated. Because none of us in this room are selfless. We're all self-centered and tend out of habitual lifetimes to put ourselves first. So we have to awake to that. We have to see that. We have to practice that. This is not some this practice is not some cultivation of some idealized humanness that's transhuman, not human. That's some fairy tale of how the Buddha was or we should be, which is another delusion. I mean, it's not hard to engage in or stick in philosophical or metaphysical perspectives or idealized perspectives of the Buddhist view or the Buddha's view or the Buddha's way. The Buddha gave his teachings for the good of the many, for the good of all beings, for the happiness of the many, out of compassion. 
out of karuna. So there are two qualities that we should develop equally. Compassion, karuna, on one side, and wisdom, prajna, a non-dual understanding of the wholeness of reality on the other. And in our practice, both wisdom and compassion rest on the cultivation of insight into ourself. That there's no fixed self. And of course, we rely our whole life on our ideal of a fixed self. Ideal and idea that we carefully construct and model out of clay. Unfired clay. So when the rain comes, it... Meaning, when suffering comes, what happens to that clay? So we sit sazen, so that we can practice noticing and seeing our thoughts and feelings arise and disappear. And we are seeing into our selfless nature, our fundamental Buddha nature, which there's no positive way to express. There isn't anything called our fundamental nature, our Buddha nature. That's the point. There's no graspable thing. There's no separate thing. And yet everything is this. Everything is included. Nothing is discarded. Nothing is discarded. Think in your life of all the things you'd like to discard about yourself and especially about others. So this is the nature of all reality. This is the Dharma Dhatu. This is interbeing. This is interdependence of all phenomena. This is all the Buddhist labels we can apply to it, none of which reaches it. What reaches it is your own direct experience of it. That's it. And in that own direct experience, you shut your mouth because there's no way to talk about it, which is the Buddhist, Buddha's Shakyamuni's conundrum all over again, right? Said the man up here who's talking about it. So ethical conduct is based on love and compassion. And, you know, we're looking at the Eightfold Noble Path, and it's, there's three aspects of that Eightfold Noble Path that particularly present this way. Right speech, right action, and right livelihood. That's within ethical conduct. So let's stop and reaffirm, re-reaffirm that when we speak of the precepts here of right speech, right action, and right livelihood, we are speaking of a practice of questioning, of discerning and exploring how we, you and I as individuals, can within your life, within the specific circumstances of your life, within specifically how you are feeling at this moment, I don't mean in the momentary feeling. I mean within the context of your life and where it brings you and what you struggle with. How you can find a way to live out of compassion, out of intention, out of work that you can perhaps fall in love with and that no longer feels like work. Work that matters, and I'm using work in the broadest possible term. Maybe it's not even how you earn your living but it's where you put your energy and love into and specifically beyond a relationship, beyond raising a child, beyond that too, all of that. Is, none of that is excluded as anyone who knows, who has a child knows. 
So that, that work, the work we do, must uphold a fundamental nature. And that's a general statement, and the specifics of that is up to us. And yes, we have to discern that and fight that and fight for that and discern and make decisions and do the best with our skillful means in this relative world. I and you, anyone who works, has made many decisions which are not, and the right decisions, perhaps, probably, that in some way may foster suffering. It's the nature of the relative world, because every decision in the relative world fosters suffering. Did you not realize that? Are you not aware of that? Right action is about right morality. It means being accurate and skillful and carries a a connotation of wise and wholesome and ideal. It is right in the sense of being upright, the way a ship rights itself in the ocean when battered by a wave. It also describes something that is complete and coherent, you know, that, that's such an interesting word to me, coherent. You know, within this path, within this practice, the thing that it offers for me, the Tao, I spoke about this Saturday or Thursday, uh, the path, it's coherent, it's a way. When the Buddha spoke of the Eightfold Noble Path, the, the fourth of the fourth noble truths, he was bringing us a coherent means of practicing our life and realizing ourselves. Holy mackerel. That's unbelievable that we have a way. You know, when I see out of deep frustration people coming to practice and realizing there is a way, when I see priests coming from Christian religions, it's not that they're coming in large numbers, but surprisingly influenced, sometimes overtly, sometimes subtly, sometimes by coming to the monastery and practicing there. They're not interested in becoming Buddhists. They're interested in a way of becoming Christians. So we have a way. It's a time-honored way. And when you look at people who've practiced this way, especially when you've known them before they practiced this way, I also go, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. When we act rightly, we act without selfish attachment to our own agendas. We act mindfully without causing discord discord with our speech. Our right actions spring from compassion and from an understanding of the Dharma. The word for action is, in Buddhism, anybody? Karma. I mean, look at that. You are creating karma 
with every move you make, every breath you take. Thank you, rock and roll. <laughs> yeah. um, you're creating an effect, an action, because every move you make, every thought you take, every word you speak has an effect. That's an action. I can't help myself, I'm sorry. (laughs) And we're talking about volitional action, especially. Things we choose consciously to do, which is often unconscious or subliminally conscious or asleep. Another word related to morality in Buddhism is sila. And the translation in English as morality or virtue or ethical conduct. Uh, And we use that word for the precepts. Sila is about harmony. So where does that take us? It takes us into this room. It's sangha. Harmony. How so? It points to the understanding of morality as living in harmony with others. And those others include us living with ourselves in harmony, right? Because we can easily see ourselves as other, parts of ourselves as other. What happens when all of you is in harmony? When all of this person is in harmony. All people are in harmony. There's no one left out of that. More than anything else, right action refers to keeping the precepts. There are different lists of precepts within Buddhism. It's interesting as I've been following my notes and just speaking. Of course, I forget my notes. There's a back to each sheet, which I haven't looked at. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So there are various lists of the precepts, and they're not a list of commandments. They describe how enlightenment lives naturally and responds to life's challenges. And as we work with the precepts, We learn to live harmoniously and compassionately as we work with them. That means practice them. doesn't mean achieve some ideal in our mind of how perfect we are with the precepts. The interesting thing about the precepts is the way you practice them is to notice them when you're not practicing them. That's how you practice the precepts. And you cannot take any one or three of these precepts or the Eightfold Noble Path in context, it's all a single thing. That's what you realize as you practice it. That's why we have eight gates of practice. That's why we have the Eightfold Noble Path, same thing. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. What does it actually mean to live this, 
to encounter this, to explore this, to practice this. And when you're suffering, particular to turn towards this. And that's what I do. I avoid creating evil. I practice good. I actualize good for others. Notice how personal this is. There's nothing special about that I in terms of me. I'm speaking for you as well. I affirm life. I do not kill. I try to be giving. Do not steal. Honor my body. It says honor the body, but honor your body. Do not misuse sexuality. Manifest truth. Do not lie. We proceed clearly. Do not cloud the mind. See the perfection. This is the Buddha's realization. All beings are whole and complete from the beginning. See the perfection. Do not speak of others' errors and faults. Realize self and other is one. Interesting challenge in today's world. Do not elevate the self and blame others. Give generously. Do not be withholding. That's realize self and other is one. Actualize harmony. Do not be angry. Experience the intimacy. Do not defile the three treasures. Thanks for listening. You can find more Dharma Talks, interviews, and events at zmm.org media. While online, please check out the Jizo Project, our multifaceted initiative to make Zen Mountain Monastery more accessible and welcoming to all. Learn about the new Jizo House building and accessibility enhancements to existing facilities that are just two aspects to this exciting endeavor. Find out more and see how you can get involved at zmm.org slash Project. That's J-I-Z-O-P-R-O-J-E-C-T.